Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin. Uh, welcome back to the Milk Podcast. Hi, I'm Ashwarya. Hello, my name is Sam. And my name is Samantha. Um, so as always, first with this uh, podcast, we're going to start with our information section, and then we're going to move on to our special guest and a special topic we have for you today. So uh, starting the information section this week, it's about medication. Um, and I'll let that transition. I'll start with this, that mental disorders are caused by a combination of low levels of neurotransmitters and the deterioration of um, branching nerve cells. And these are biological imbalances. And I'll uh, uh, hand it to Samantha to t- uh, let you know how medication can fix those imbalances. Medication fixes these imbalances to make you feel better, not worse. The same way that medication medicine might help soothe a stomach that has an imbalance, imba- mental health medication should be treated in the same regards, not as stigmatized, but still taken seriously. And there are many different types of medications, and each has different effects on different people. If one doesn't work, another one might work better. Medication isn't meant to work immediately because it needs t- some time to help repair the damaged nerve cells. So don't be discouraged because the medication isn't working as it may need some time. Now I'm gonna go into certain types of medications that you may see related to mental illness. So first we have antidepressants such as Zoloft and Prozac, which reduce feelings of depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. Then we have antipsychotics such as Abilify and Closeril, which eliminate unwanted voices and fearful thoughts. Then we have mood stabilizers such as Depakot and Lamictal, which reduce extremes of high and low moods. Then we have sleeping pills such as Ambien and Lunesta, which can help with insomnia. And then we have stimulants such as Ritalin and Adderall, which can help calm, improve concentration and attention span. It's important to understand that medication, like all aspects of mental health, should not be stigmatized. It's yet another avenue of support that some people use to help their own mental health. And so with that, uh, we hope that you check out our event on uh, medication. Uh, You'll see that in school this week. And now I'd like to move on to the second part of our con- uh, podcast, the more conversational section. I'd like to introduce our special guest for this episode, Alaria. Alaria, would you like to introduce yourself and what you do? Hi, yes, I'm Alaria St. Florian and I'm a registered dietitian at Stanford Hospital. And specifically I run the Kids Fans program, which is Kids and Fans stands for Fitness and Nutrition Services, which is an outpatient nutrition education program, counseling and um, Pre-COVID, I used to go into the schools. Some of the middle and high schools in Stanford have school-based health centers where I used to go in and do one-on-one nutrition counseling with students. Got it. Thank you. And so now we're going to just throw a bunch of questions at Alaria about nutrition and mental health, and uh, she'll give us you know, answers that I hope you guys enjoy listening to. So we're going to start off with the first question, and it's how do you define a quote-unquote healthy diet? Yeah, so a healthy diet is, is really, in essence, it's two things. It's eating balance. So it's trying to get foods from all your food groups. You have five food groups. Our junk foods are not food groups. Those are kind of our extra foods. And trying to get them in relatively similar portions. So for example, instead, of, if you were gonna have, um, let's say a pasta dish, you know, trying to keep the starch to like a quarter or a third of the dish so that you then have room for a protein, vegetable, and trying to, I always say you may not get five food groups on your dish, but aim for at least three and make sure there's always a protein and always a color, because that's kind of a really easy trick to make sure there's a fruit or a vegetable on your dish. Got it. Thank you. Sam, you want to ask the next question? Um, okay, so um, as a high school student, as a high school student, I have a lot of friends that uh, 
don't really eat breakfast in the morning. And sometimes myself, I won't wake up in time to eat breakfast. So um, can you please just explain how important it is to really eat breakfast? Yeah, I would actually be happy to because it is the one thing that shocks me with high schoolers is the amount of kids that don't eat breakfast. And usually when they tell me that, the next thing I ask them is, well, how do you feel in the morning? How do you, do you have the energy to get through your morning classes? And usually they look at me and say, no, not really. I'm pretty tired. And so that's what happens if, you know, if you think about it, you've been fasting all night because most people aren't eating, right? They're sleeping. So you've been, you've been basically fasting eight to 10 hours. So your nutrient level is really low when you wake up in the morning. And if you then go to school without any breakfast, you're going to be running on empty. So you're going to be low energy, hard to concentrate, tired, but you're also going to have symptoms like headache, stomach ache. You're going to be hangry. Uh, I love that expression. So you're going to be more irritable, more likely to get into arguments. So that expression that we all know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, is absolutely true. The other reason it's really important is that for kids that maybe have weight issues, what happens is kids that don't eat breakfast, or anyone who doesn't eat breakfast, tends to then eat more towards the end of the day. So in fact, people who don't eat breakfast actually weigh more than people who do have breakfast. And one other thing, kids that have breakfast do better in school. They score better on tests. So they're more engaged. It's a great question. And I know that Sam was talking about how we kind of have limited time in the morning just because that's kind of how our schedules are. We sleep late and we have to go to school early. So do you have any suggestions for like a quick thing that you could have for breakfast that's, uh, you know, sustaining uh, whatever sustainable and helps you get through the day? Yeah, absolutely. So really it's same idea, three food groups. So let's, let's super quick, whole wheat bread, peanut butter, banana, put it together. Maybe you add a fourth food group. Maybe you add a glass of milk. How long does it take you to eat that? Five minutes. You know, if you even if you're having a bowl of cereal with some low fat milk, maybe you put some berries on top. If you're having a yogurt with some berries, some nuts, those are foods that don't take a whole lot of time to eat. Um, and another thing, because the sleeping late and I listen, I've got three teenagers, I totally get it. But what, you know, trying to set yourself up for success. So maybe that is planning your breakfast the night before having it ready so that you can even just grab and go and eat it on your way to school, whether you're walking, you're being driven in the bus, but really trying to make time for it. Because honestly, sometimes it's really just a question of waking up five minutes earlier and having a plan of what to eat. Another question that we had is, how does a healthy diet for teenagers or children compare to a healthy diet for adults? Is it just calorie intake or is there anything else involved? There's nothing else involved. It's really a question of um, what your calorie needs are. So your calorie needs, if you're a very athletic 17 year old kid, you may have higher calorie needs than a 50 year old woman. So it's really depending on your age, your gender, your activity level, but in premise, it's all the same. It's just how the, the quantity of the portions is the only difference. And I guess with that, I mean, do you think caffeine in the morning, like coffee is a healthy option for teenagers? I know some people who can't get through the day without coffee and others who like swear against it. So what do you think about that? So coffee, there's nothing wrong with coffee. I think coffee gets a bad rap. If you took my coffee away from me, I would really be upset about it. The trick with coffee is what you put in it. So it's the scoops and scoops of sugar, the heavy, the cream, the half and half. 
that's what gets people into trouble where it starts to get really too much fat, too much sugar. But if you're having two cups of coffee a day and you need it to get through the, the morning and be more focused, no problem. You know, it's really like you were talking about the medications. I mean, it's really a natural stimulant. So it's- And so with that, it is definitely possible to get addicted to caffeine in that sort of way where you kind of need it to get through the day, right? It's, it's absolutely addictive, but, but addictive in the sense that it's, it's not like alcohol or smoking. It's okay. You can have your cup of coffee. You know, if you're not eating and you're just relying on the buzz of the caffeine to get you through the whole day and it's replacing nutrients from food, then it's an issue. But if you're just having it in combination with a healthy breakfast, that's fine. Um, and uh, my next question is how much water should people be drinking and how um, is it important for overall nutrition? So water is incredibly important. So water helps regulate your, your body temperature. Um, water, you're actually more, your metabolism goes up. You're more metabolically um, active when, when you're hydrated. So water is by weight. So there's a calculation that I do that it's based on your weight. And so it's, it's as simple as that, yeah. And I guess a follow-up in that regards is what is the biggest struggle that you see people having with nutrition overall, whether that's like drinking more water, um, eating less of a certain type of food, or just what, what do you see as the biggest struggle? What I see as the biggest struggle, a couple of things. I, I think there, I think there is, there's a, definitely a, the convenience factor that foods that are, I mean, we have food everywhere, right? I mean, when I was your age, I'd go to the gas station, there wasn't food. Now I go to the gas station, it's like a little mini market. So there's food everywhere. It's very easy to get, it's cheap, but a lot of the food that's cheap and easy to get is also processed food. So high fat, high sugar foods, low in nutrition. So the pitfalls can be can be that is trying to go for what's convenient as opposed to eating healthy, which maybe requires a little bit more prep. So again, I'm always about planning things in advance. You know, if that's having like fresh things prepped in your refrigerator and Tupperware to make it more accessible. So I think that's number one. I think the other thing that I see a lot with kids is snacking. And I think that there's this feeling that I can't snack. Like when I ask kids, do you snack? They're like, oh no, I, I have to say no. But you should snack. I, I couldn't get through the day if I didn't snack. In fact, you know, when we're talking about mental health, and this is really important, you don't want to go really more than four hours without eating, especially when you're a teenager, right? You guys are really busy. You're in school. You're, you're you know, all that mental energy requires food energy, requires fuel. So what happens is if you go too many hours without eating, your blood sugar starts to dip and you get really low blood sugar, hypoglycemic, which I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but it's a really lousy feeling. You feel kind of confused and shaky and sweaty, and you really are just not yourself. So you want to keep that blood sugar level on a, on a really steady, even keel throughout the day. And that's going to help your mood as well. And so keeping in mind to eat, um, yeah, every four hours. Anyway, oh, Sorry, no, I was just going to say with a follow-up, like what's your favorite meal or snack or something to like meal prep? Like what's your favorite thing to eat? So I think a simple way to think about um, a healthy snack or even a meal is to combine, I, I think of it in my head because I'm just like a very a visual thinker. I always think of it like puzzle pieces, like you're putting in a puzzle piece and taking one out. And so for me, it's combining a lean protein. So lean protein is something like 
poultry, fish, eggs, beans, nuts, seeds, lean red meat uh, with, a, uh, with fiber. So the protein, the fiber combination together and fiber is a whole host of different foods. Again, super helpful for mental health. So fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, nuts, seeds, and those two combined are where you're gonna get both a healthy snack. Because a, a snack in essence is a small meal. I mean, that's really the way to think about it. Like, like what I was kind of going for before is that I think we have so ingrained in our head that a snack is a snack food and a snack food is like a bag of chips and a soda, but it doesn't have to be. A snack can really be um, a nutritious meal that just adds to you know, your nutrient needs for the day. Actually, I just want to piggyback off because we're talking about snacking right now. I know my parents have always told me that it's bad to the late night snack. So like after dinner, after dessert, sometimes I'm doing homework and, you know, I feel that, I don't know, maybe I want to have a banana or something. Is it bad to eat like right before you go to bed? Or I know you just said snacking was a good idea, but is, does the timing matter in that decision? I think that's, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, it depends what you're doing it for, right? So if you're you're in high school and you're up late and you really start to feel like I just, I've got a test. I can't focus. I really need a little, a little energy, right? And a banana is a fruit. So it's healthy and it's like a quick carbohydrate. So I would say, yes, that's not a problem. Absolutely. Generally, I discourage late night eating because really, if you think about food as fuel, you don't need it at night. What I see often are, are something different from that. I see like the late time, late night snack of a sugary cereal. And that gets people into trouble because they're not doing it to stay up and, and study. They're doing it because they're watching TV and it's kind of cozy to sit there with your cereal. But that becomes a weight issue. So that's something different. So I think if you're going to have a late night snack, I would keep it like the protein and the fiber. So banana would be good. And I would stay away from the refined grains like cereals or bagels, muffins, that kind of stuff. All right, um, next question. So I know in the morning there are various like vitamins you can take. And I was just wondering, are those vitamin supplements a healthy option? Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. So if you are eating really healthy, so if you're like we said in the beginning, let's say you're on 1800 calorie diet and you've got three milks a day, six protein, five servings of fruits and vegetables, like you're hitting all your targets, you don't need a multivitamin. If however, you're not, and you're not making the healthiest food choices, then a multivitamin is just a really good insurance that you're getting all the nutrients you need, especially because you're kids. So you guys are still growing. So it's especially important for you. All right, the next question is, uh, I've seen a, a lot around looking up nutrition, uh, something called a food journal. So I just wanna clarify, what is a food journal and should people use them? Oh boy, that is, that's a good one. Um, People generally don't like to do food journals. You know, when I ask people to do it, it's like they, they look, it's like dead stare. Nobody wants to do it. But I'll tell you this. When I was in graduate school for nutrition, it was what we, we had to follow all the trends. And one of them was doing a food journal. It is an incredibly insightful experience because you become so in tune with what you're eating. And I think when we are kind of on the go and maybe like, you know, picking something here and grabbing out of the food pantry. Like we're not really thinking about everything we eat, but if you have to actually write down every single bite that goes in your mouth, whether food or drink, and then you tally it up and you generally, uh, what I would do when people would bring me a food journal, 
and they write down every meal, every snack, everything, condiments, you know, I have two sips of Coca-Cola, everything. What I then do is I tally up not only the calories, but I also would tally up the percentage of protein, fat, carbohydrate. I can figure out how much calcium, how much vitamin D people are getting. So it gives me a good gauge too, to understand where people may be falling short on their nutrient intake. So it's a great exercise to do. And there are a lot of computer programs where you can really just do it on your phone. You don't even have to do it on paper and it automatically tallies everything for you. Our next question is um, in regards to whether there's a link between mental health and nutrition, like we discussed how there's a link between medication and mental health. Yeah, so there definitely is. There's what happens when you're, let's say stressed is your cortisol level goes up, your stress hormone. And so let's say you're temporarily stressed. Let's say you're walking down the street and a dog starts barking and running after you. So your, your cortisol goes up, you go into fight or flight mode, your, your body, your, your body that revs up, uh, your heart rate goes up and you lose your appetite because what happens is all of the energy that you need to be in fight or flight mode goes to your running, to your muscles. And then once that episode of stress is over, you go back to normal. When people are chronically stressed, so maybe you're stressed because like school is too hard or you've just gotten a fight with your friend, what happens is the cortisol level can get stuck there. And what cortisol does is it increases your appetite. So your blood sugar goes up, which causes your appetite to go up because blood sugar is a key, a key to, um, sorry, insulin is a key that opens up um, your cells to feed them. And so if insulin is not working and you have a lot and your blood sugar is high, your body feels like it's not satisfied. It's almost like you're kind of going into starvation mode. So you feel always hungry. So what kind of food do we crave when we're stressed and hungry? We tend to crave comfort foods. And so what happens is people start to eat these comfort foods, which then gives you a dose of serotonin. So you then feel calm. But what's happening is you're feeling better because you're having your whatever comfort food, maybe it's French fries or a piece of cake, but you're not then, you're not then um, getting to the root cause of your stress. And so once the serotonin wears off, you're back where you started. And it becomes a little bit of a vicious cycle with chronic eating, stress. Um, I think of it as emotional eating. It's something actually, I've, not surprisingly, and with COVID, it's something I've seen really a huge rise in is that emotional eating. And, you know, one thing actually, Kevin, you, I was thinking of when you asked me about that late night eating, it, sometimes you may think I want to eat something and, you know, taking that moment, that pause where you could step, sit back and say, why do I want to eat something? Am I really hungry or am I just eating it because I'm bored? You know, I'm stressed and sort of just kind of checking in with yourself can be really helpful. Um, okay. And uh, what type, what types of foods are healthy for the brain and why are they healthy? Okay. So really good question. So there's, <coughs> excuse me, there is a, a new kind of field of science, which is really fascinating. And it's called nutritional psychiatry. And it, it looks at the connection between the gut and the gut is your entire gastrointestinal tract. So from your mouth all the way down to your brain. 
because they're connected through the vagus nerve. And the connection being that in the gut, so serotonin, that feel-good neurotransmitter, is actually um, produced largely in the gut. And so the foods that you eat affect your microbiome, all that bacteria that we have in our GI, right? It's a combination of healthy bacteria and not healthy bacteria. And you want to keep the equilibrium of that microbiome so that you can produce serotonin and all of those like happy neurotransmitters. And if you eat an unhealthy, what I call kind of our Western American diet, which is your really heavily processed, you know, think fried foods, fast foods, what happens is you're creating a bad, an unhealthy bacteria. And that is then going to affect, this is how the theory goes, it then is going to affect your brain health. So how do you eat healthy foods to introduce healthy bacteria? And those are really our whole foods, right? Fruits, vegetables, um, you've probably heard of omega-3s. So omega-3 fatty acids are largely fish oils. You can get them from chia seeds, flax seeds, walnuts. Um, and those are anti-inflammatory. So anti-inflammatory foods, um, vitamins and minerals that are antioxidants um, are also anti-inflammatory. So again, if you're eating healthy, varied diet, you should be in good shape. If you're not, you could be deficient in certain nutrients. And there's, there are certain key nutrients. So for example, the B vitamins, so that's thiamine, riboflavin, folate, B12, B6, um, have a great neurological impact. So if you don't eat, and, and a large, those are largely like refined grains, a lot of the meat, poultry, fish, um, that can definitely um, exacerbate any sort of depressive symptoms you may have. Same with these things like zinc, selenium, magnesium, vitamin C. So, um, and then there are also spices. So turmeric, garlic, um, rosemary, ginger, herbal teas. Those are also good things that you can add to foods to, to have additional nutrients for mental health. So think of, so you're really thinking that you want to then feed the healthy bacteria. And fiber is kind of an interesting thing. So if you think about probiotics, fiber is a, many fibrous foods are prebiotics. So they're actually food for the probiotics that are the organisms, the healthy, healthy organisms in your gut. Hopefully that all made sense. I did. Thank you. Um, so now we're going to like, uh, when I think about shopping, my, uh, I always think about like whole foods versus, you know, here at Stanford, we have grade A. Um, and so one misconception I was always curious about is are foods labeled as organic actually healthier for you and a better okay. option? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually love grade A. I love acne. Um, I love ShopRite. I, I, I don't think you have, if I don't go to Whole Foods, I can't eat healthy. I, I don't buy into that because I think Whole Foods is really expensive. Um, I'm a huge fan of Trader Joe's, but I'll tell you this. Organic foods are healthy in the sense that they are grown without any pesticides or herbicides, but the actual nutrition that's in the food is not different. That being said, there's something called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, I'm pretty sure, that you can Google. And it gives you a list, it's kind of interesting, it gives you a list of foods that if you're going to buy organic, you should really buy those foods. 
So that could be something just to, to have available to look at. So for example, something like milk is one of the ones um, that you do want to buy organic. Because if you think about it, I mean, it's kind of logical, right? It comes from, from, from cows. And if cows are, eat, are not eating organic grass, it's gonna, they're going to ingest it and then it's going to end up in your milk. So like for me, I don't buy all organic, but I only buy organic milk. And then there's certain foods that I prefer to buy organic, but yeah, take a look at the list because you'd be surprised. It's kind of interesting to see what's on there. And I mean, with that, what other misconceptions do you see that are common about nutrition? I guess with the organic versus not, not organic and any other things. Um, I see, well, that's a good question. I mean, I think there's, if, you know, we all are, we all make our food decisions as when we're young based on our food environment. So our food environment, what is that? It's, it's our house. It's where our parents come from. It's, it's the environment where I live. Do I live in a city that's full of fast food restaurants and only has a bodega in the corner? Do I live on a farm where everything's fresh? So I think we are very much colored and are by the foods that we've grown up around. So I think there's, there's definitely a cultural aspect as well to, that um, I'm always very sensitive to when we talk, when I talk about misconceptions, because I, I don't want to ever think there's like a right or wrong answer. Like I'm not sitting here saying you can never go to McDonald's. Of course you can go to McDonald's, but you just don't want to do it every day. So I think it's just education and understanding some things like sugar. Um, I think we all know as kids that we shouldn't have too much sugar. I don't think we know why we shouldn't have too much sugar. So it's really trying to educate, like, why is it not good? But also, how do I know how much sugar is in my food and how much is too much? So it's really that empowering. It's once you know that information, once you can look at a nutrition facts label and you know what to look at and how to read it and you simplify it, it's really empowering because then you can really, you know, be, be more in charge of what you're putting in your body. Um, okay, so as a, as a nutritionist, I'm sure you know some fun facts about our bodies. So what do you think, what are the, what's one of the coolest nutrition fun facts you have? Yeah, our, well, I love digestion. I think it's probably one of the most, it's probably the reason I got into nutrition. I think it's fascinating. So fiber doesn't get absorbed, right? So most nutrients, we break them down, blah, 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 and they go into our, largely our small intestine, and they get absorbed into the bloodstream. Fiber is like a broom, just like goes through, cleans everything out, right? So when we hear fiber reduces cholesterol, it's because it takes all, all the waste out. Most Americans don't get enough fiber. So that's a super important nutrient to have. It's like you knew um, our next question. Uh, I wanted to ask what made you go into nutrition, but um, if you want to elaborate a little more. Yeah, I actually was interested in nutrition when I was a kid. I remember I, I remember being in elementary school and feeling sometimes like I was tired, like more fatigued than I felt I should be. And I remember thinking, I'm going to try and change my eating. And I really started to notice just the power of different food choices and how it really helped me. And I kind of got into it ever since. And then our last two questions for you tonight, what are some good resources for nutrition help and who are the people to go to? Okay, great question. Uh, so Dr. Google 
is not always a great doctor because there's, I guess that honestly, if, if you ask me the myth question, that's my biggest issue. The amount of people who come into my office. So they told me, and, and I'm like, who's they? Who's they? It's always, they told me, and then it's always some kind of crazy, non-science, non-evidence-based little bit of, of information. So the best sites, if you want information, I mean, I always look at things like um, American Academy of Pediatrics, CDC. Um, I look at some nutrition websites, but um, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, anything, any met, like if you anything that's um, hospital-based site tend to have really good information, really good patient handouts. But just be very, just be savvy of where you're you're getting the information. So with that, we'll conclude the episode. A big thank you to Laria for joining us. I'm sure everyone learned a whole lot about nutrition. So again, thank you. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Milk Podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every month. Make sure you share this with your friends and family. Thanks for joining us again. Stay safe and we'll MYL. See you later.